You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio. My name is David DeKaiser, and I do retail consulting for the NBDA's P2 Consult Program. You can find more information on that program and all the other great benefits the NBDA provides on the NBDA's website, nbda.com. Today's guest is Todd Cravens. Todd is the Vice President of Business Development at Quality Bicycle Products. Todd has well over 40 years of industry experience. And with that, thank you, Todd, for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you, David. I'm really pleased to be here. First off, why don't you give us a little bio on your experience over the years? And as you finish up, maybe you could go into what you're doing day-to-day at QBP. Okay, thank you. I was bitten by the bike bug at about age 10 and not been able to since shake it. So bicycles have been a personal passion of mine, and that morphed into working in stores through my youth in school and starting a store on campus in college and doing economic research on the economic behavior of bike shops and businesses in college. On to import work, being a partner at a store in the Washington, D.C. area in the 80s, working in manufacturer at Serata, and eventually coming to QBP, working in customer service, product development, product management, purchasing, sales, and in many cases, most things wrapped around retailer and dealer support. At this point in my career, as the Vice President of Business Development, I'm the one tasked with looking to the future and developing things that will help our retailers and suppliers thrive. And so, you know, on a daily basis, that does mean quite a bit of retailer contact, both big and small. You know, that's part of how we're trying to keep our finger on the pulse of what it is that retailers are experiencing, needing, and wanting. And then there are times when someone says they want something, and I might actually disagree and think rather that somebody actually may want something, but maybe need something else. And that if we talk about what's happening in the way our world has changed post-COVID and how shopping habits have changed and what many retailers have had to do to tack, you know, kind of adjust to whether it's a new normal or not, the new conditions. I'm not sure many people would say that those are things they wanted. But if we talk about retailers being available to consumers a variety of ways, whether it's online or social, I would argue those would be things that retailers needed. So, you know, on a daily basis, it can also be things. I sit on our credit committee, so I see a lot of bicycle shop financial information. I'm in the sign-off chain there, and it's something that you know, kind of developed a bit of a knack for in terms of helping me to understand the financial health of our retailers. And that can go to margin conversations with vendors when a vendor develops an item and gives a map and says what they think the margin should be for a retailer. I've consulted to a number of vendors and been able to share with them that not, actually that margin is not enough based on what bike shops average expenses are. And what I find is that oftentimes vendors don't know what that number is, but we have real data. So we do know what they are. And it's something that happens behind the scenes, but something that I've done as well. So Those are maybe a few bits and pieces. It's a bit of a mixed bag on a daily basis. Excellent. Yeah, we'll dig into that profitability thing here in just a little bit. I think that that'll be very interesting. The first major topic right now as of today in the industry, I think a lot of retailers are wondering about inventory levels, what that's going to look like over the next few months, what your take is on that. And do you have any suggestions for what retailers could do either to prepare if we think we're going to have shortages. So basically, how did we get to where we are at at this point in time? And what can we do going forward? Right. Thank you. I think that you know part of how we got here was that well, manufacturers and distributors had forecasted modest growth for spring of 2020. Nobody was expecting what would come, the devastating effects of COVID, not only in the tragic loss of life, 
but all the economic disruption, particularly as things really lit up in the United States in March. For a period of time, we saw sales drop off at a rate of 30%, which is really not sustainable for virtually any business. And we had to take some very drastic actions in our organization, as did other companies out there. If we look at just general industry, it was pretty scary. The switch flipped, though, and cycling seemed to be something that people could do. I think in many cases, bikes offer a more affordable solution than a new bass boat or a new jet ski or a new car or whatever that is. And so we saw business come roaring back through our retailers. Many of the retailers we've worked with and spoken to have talked about working the hours and having the kind of business that those who've been around a long time experienced during the bike boom in the early 70s that they've been told about. And to the point that there's been so much growth for many people that it's beyond stressful. It's rather hard to continue to meet day after day. But as we go into some of the things that happened, though, this has started to fall off. A number of companies very quickly canceled purchase orders or put them off. The factories got this information and they made adjustments. In many cases, they were struggling with staffing their factories due to the closures and quarantines that staff had been in due to COVID issues in Southeast Asia. So as things kind of peeled back like that, a number of, again, factories were able to adjust. But when things very quickly flipped, and all of a sudden demand came roaring back, at that point, many um, the bike companies, ourselves included, came back to our factories and said, oh, no, no, we know you're only at 80% capacity, but here's 120 or 150% of what we originally thought we wanted, which kind of created a big gap for the factory to try to meet demand. If you throw in the fact that three of Shimano's factories in Malaysia, Philippines, and Singapore which make lower-end to middle-end product, uh, very, very popular on the OEM side, high demand, if you will. Those factories were shuttered for anywhere from 30 to 45 days, and that was a problem as well. So we've seen these kind of supply-side shocks and some demand-side shocks as well, both the fall-off and then the business roaring back in that. So there have been some gaps for the manufacturers, if you will, to try to catch up. So we've seen quite a bit of pressure on them. And that's both on the bike side and on the P&A side. So that's a bit of kind of where we got there, if that makes sense. And really about advice and dealing with it, it is so challenging for everyone. And my heart goes out to everybody here. I really think this is a place where you do lean into the relationships you've created. So, and hopefully the suppliers you're working with, you have a good credit relationship. You know, the credit managers are going to need to know that you're likely going to need more credit because you're buying more and buying more frequently. Hopefully there's enough cash flow is being generated that you can not only seek that, but also continue to meet your credit obligations. We're a big believer as a company in just-in-time inventory. It gives retailers more flexibility, and we fund our inventory such that retailers can order more frequently from us, get higher turns, and actually spend, if you will, more cash through the business, but with a lower capital requirement. So we're big believers in just-in-time inventory. We think you put less at risk. I think that what we're seeing right now with demand, this is a place where, especially on bread and butter items, retailers should probably take a longer view of days-on-hand inventory. Because there are things you just don't want to be out of. You don't want to be out of tubes. You don't want to be out of tires. You want to be out of cables on the service side as an example. But there are also accessory items that should go on every bike or that people should be buying from you that you also don't want to be out of. So I think a retailer in this time should probably put more days on hand in stock. And that's because product is available. It's certainly run out in some categories, some items. And and that's been challenging, again, for everybody because everybody wants it. I think those are a couple ways to get at it. Additionally, I think you have to be more comfortable with substituting out something, maybe even a product line that you add a product line because it's available and it's filling a need that you have. And it's maybe not your first choice, but 
you know, I was talking to a large retailer, an NBDA member, of course, who made the comment to me that his bike supplier had run out of four groups of bikes. And when he said, what should I do? I'm thinking about adding another brand. The vendor said, oh, don't do that. That's a horrible idea. <laughs> and the retailer asked, well, how long will you be out? And he's like, at least five weeks. Well, that's not acceptable. This retailer can't be without bikes for five weeks. So he did bring on another line. And I'm not suggesting that retailers just kind of willy-nilly jump lines, but I think you have to be open to meeting those opportunities as they become available to you, if that makes sense. Does that kind of get at it, David? Absolutely. Yep. I think that's great advice. And it's interesting to hear. I've heard a few people discuss where bikes were made and how that might affect where they're coming from. But when you paint the picture of these parts are coming from, there's also parts included when you're buying bikes. So it's just that whole supply chain has been interrupted across the board. So even if you could get parts of a bike, you may not get the whole bike. Well, that's true. And the other piece to throw in there as it comes out of the tariffs that we as a bike industry have had to deal with is that a number of manufacturers, ourselves included, are in the process of moving our supply chains. And in a naive world, the feedback I've gotten from some retailers, it's a little bit jaded. It's like, I don't know why you don't just do that. I mean, it's really easy. Just go to a different country. You know, kind of like if Burger King's out, you go to McDonald's kind of a thing. And it doesn't quite work that way. And what we found is in the best possible instance, and that's with everything working perfectly and working with existing people that you know, you're 18 months. And you could easily be 22 to 24 months because you go to a different country. You've got to qualify all of the manufacturing, you've got to qualify all of the samples, and then your batch testing when you're doing production. And so I wish it were easy, but <laughs> it's not. And on the one hand, actually, it's rather making it, having all these hurdles, it slows you down to be sure, but particularly with the batch testing, it allows you to catch things upstream so they never hit the retailer and they never hit the consumer. So you catch things before they're a problem, but it is a fairly involved thing. So yeah, that's been a challenge for everyone. So let's kind of turn a corner here. You and I had had a conversation, and you had alluded to this in your introduction, about profitability and yeah. what QBP has found the average store's pre-tax profits are overall, what they are for good stores. And why don't we kind of dive into that a little bit? I think that this is something that retailers would probably find interesting if they don't know how they stack up to other retailers, A, and B what the potential is for okay. them profitability-wise. I've been in the industry, as you mentioned, for a very long time, ever since I can remember. So I started working in bike shops in eighth grade. I've always been told you can't make a lot of money in the bike business or you know, kind of the old thing that we kidded about. How do you make a small fortune to start with a large fortune? And yep. you know, it's I've, as I spent time, as I did research, and then as I owned a store, and then as I continued to support retailers throughout my career, I have come across a number of retailers that have made very comfortable livings and in some cases creating wealth and they run really disciplined businesses and they, they certainly work hard. We all work hard, but they pull it off. And so when I think about that, I know it's out there. And in most cases, those retailers are running their business like a business. And some retailers that I've spoken to take offense when I say that. And my intention is never to be offensive, but it's rather to reflect on what it is you're doing and are you getting the result you want. And if you're not, then you need to change. And you change by looking at what's causing your results, right? So, you know, we've seen pre-tax profit between 2.2 and 3.9% on average, frankly, with SG&As at 35 to 45%, which are quite high if you think of a vendor crowing about an item that is 50% gross profit margin or that. So keep what we have called keystone over the years. 
you know, there's not a lot left over, frankly. Yet we have seen also retailers that are pushing 10 to 12% pre-tax. Those retailers, and it's not that, you know, running on a shoestring or don't have any overhead or don't pay their staff or things of that nature. They're significantly more efficient. They do run leaner as it relates to staff. So their staff gets worked pretty hard. But they are also really operating on the three kind of leverage points of the income statement around how they maximize sales, how they maximize margin, and that comes out of how they buy. And then lastly, their expense hawks. You know, and the expense part is the least alluring part of the job. If you like bikes, you don't really want to be negotiating with your insurance broker and the people that provide your internet and your landlord and the utility company, on and on and on. But that's what we found as we've done research and income statements as we've visited retailers, as we've done work with P2. We did work with P2 over a period of time. There were definitely those retailers that did that. And I think it goes back to, frankly, the basics of are you buying and selling items on which you can be profitable? And again, that's for some people, that sounds ridiculous to say it that way. I continue to be floored that retailers sell products on which they aren't profitable and then kind of insult to injury is on which they do not know that they are not profitable. And that's a really, really scary combination. One question I had that I kind of came back to after our last conversation was the pre-tax profits. The NBDA in their cost of doing business surveys has a term owner's compensation and profits to gross sales. And those numbers that you're talking about, anywhere from 2.2% to 10, 12, or 15%, those do not include the owner's salary. Is that correct? Those numbers actually do include the owner's salary. They are what I would call a fully loaded income statement. And so, no, they do. In fact, for that 2.2 to 4 point or 3.9, these aren't people that are writing a massive distribution at the end of the year, you know, and so exec comp shoots off the page, you know. These are folks that are operating just above or just below average costs. It's kind of a precarious place to be. The people that are running tidier businesses with higher pre-tax profits, the difference we see that really drives it home is the expense piece. We'll see a five-point delta on expense, sometimes seven points. And sometimes it's because the retailer really did bread and water for the first several years, and that retailer was able to get a mortgage to buy a building and eventually pay him or herself rent. And at the end of a 35-year run, they didn't just have a business with a pre-tax profit to sell, so there could be a multiple. They had good inventory, even though it's going to be written down on a sale but they had a building they could either sell or rent. And so, you know, they've got, they're building a tangible asset for which there's a public market. You know, there are a lot of stores that are not making a lot of money that at the end of 30 years, if they're operating, maybe clearing two to 4% pre-tax, they've got okay inventory, they rent a building. Even if they're pulling down, let's be generous and say 5% because the math is easier when they're doing a million dollars. And you say that somehow you talk somebody into paying you a five times multiple, well, you're retiring on what it would be a very small amount of money. Uh, so right. to speak. And so I think it's a bit of the battle that you fight on a daily basis. And that's how you win the war at the end, if you will. Maybe that language is too martial. But nonetheless, you've really got to be engaged measuring regularly. So I still know retailers, they look at annual balance sheet income statement. They don't look at monthly or weekly. And I'm a big believer in charting your progress because the sooner you find what your results are, if they're what you want, we'll do more of it. If they're not what you want, figure out what's causing it and change it so then you can get what you want. This podcast is brought to you by MBDA membership and industry donors. To continue providing education and content like the podcast you're listening to now, we need your support. Go to mbda.com and join or donate today. So 
So one of the big discussions is always around margin. And we talked about this a little bit and how to increase it. One of the topics you brought up was the idea of value pricing. And you used an example from when you were a store owner. And I was wondering if you could kind of go through that real quickly. Sure. Thank you. To be sure to qualify this for everybody, I had a store in the 80s. It was before the internet. It was in a Washington, D.C. suburbs. There was a strong personal income component, and it was during the 80s, which was kind of a go-go time in the economy, especially in Washington. But we were clear that there were certain items that customers didn't shop you on. They just wanted to know that you had it and could fix it. For us, it was steel, 27 by one and a quarter, chromed, bolt-on rear wheels. We paid, I think, I want to say 865 if I remember right, and we sold them for 34.99 all day. And again, the question was always not how much is it? It was rather, can you do this and get me back on the road right now? That taught us a valuable lesson. One, we tried to position ourselves as a shop that offered exceptional value, not prices, but exceptional value. So we were customer centric, checked into our community, involved in our community as well, of course. But we did look at a number of things where we believed we could make more money. And so we marked things as such. Now, were there some things that were just kind of insanely competitive? Absolutely. We could get those things for people, but we didn't stock them because we wouldn't make enough money on them. And so while I was an enthusiast and liked all the neat bike parts, we were a business first and had to be profitable. So I think that approaching it that way, knowing what those items are, and often those are service items. But even if we take that step further, I have seen retailers let the items being sold, say at service, be determined by the service advisor or the service manager, not by what the retailers chosen for assortment, that is where the retail will be most profitable. And I've often seen people sell things where they're either trading dollars or losing money on a repair item when they should be making significantly a significant margin. Because again, they're providing a service, they can obviously price in the labor too, but It is a piece that can be a disconnect. So I think that value pricing matters as a way to approach your business. So do you have to know your market? Absolutely. And do you have to know what it will bear? Yes, you do. So do you do some testing? Of course. You're going to probably lose a few people along the way, customers, that think that you're not worth it. And we were very, I got to tell you that we struggled with that at first because we didn't want to lose anybody. It was really, really hard when somebody uh, accused us of charging too much. But Interestingly, that didn't ultimately have impact that we could measure. It didn't drive our sales down or things of that nature. Fantastic. So in the big three items here for profitability, we've gone over expenses, which are the hard and somewhat boring part. We've <laughs> talked about we've talked about margins. When I've talked to retailers, when I was a retailer and now, one of the things that always comes up is just a very knee-jerk way of improving their businesses to increase sales. And it seems like the easy way out. Well, if I could just get my sales up and fill in the blank what the percentage is or the number of bikes. But you had stated that you need to be very mindful of the cost to increase those sales and had discussed a multiplier of your pre-tax profits to determine if something actually works. And the example that we had discussed to me was so clear and I think could be very helpful for retailers about an ad buy and how you would determine if that was actually successful. And I think to give an idea too, that increasing sales, you really need to increase sales if you're going to spend money to increase the sales. Agreed. And thank you. You know, it's one of those things that I've kind of struggled with getting to, but I've seen it when people are considering an ad buy for whatever medium you wish. If that's agnostic, you spend $1,000, let's say, which is not insignificant for any store. 
And I've seen retailers say, well, I spent a thousand and I made about a thousand or eleven hundred dollars in sales. So, you know, I just about broke even. And so I did okay because I got my name out there, you know. And first of all, I think that's the wrong approach. When you're evaluating any kind of expense and where you anticipate a return, you need to look at your pre tax profit. You can divide that into 100 to get an integer that tells you what the multiplier is, how many sales dollars you have to break even. And so, again, because the math is easy in my head, You've got a 5% pre-tax profit. If you divide that into 100, you've got a multiplier of 20 times. That $1,000 ad buy breaking you even gets you $20,000. If it doesn't get you $20,000, you've lost money because margin's involved. I think it's a handy little tool to evaluate whether or not something is worth it because you can put a hard measure on, did it return you sales? Did it actually make you money? And I think we often have gotten this from people in the advertising and marketing world when they come to us to say, oh, no, this is going to be great for you. You're going to have a great ROI. Well, you now have a tool to determine whether or not it's a great ROI or whether or not it's an ROI at all. Maybe it's a loss, right? Again, not a particularly alluring thing, but I think it's a powerful tool to help you be a steward of your business because really for the retailer, if not you, who? That's the old Harry Truman, the buck stops here. And so that kind of really takes me to, it's not that you shouldn't be looking for opportunities, but I'm a big believer in making a plan and then executing your plan. And as you're executing, you're measuring. And if it's not going the way you want, you find out what's the pinch, what's the area that's causing the problem. You fix it and you move forward and keep measuring. I've kind of had the belief that because of the feedback I've gotten, more people know what their functional threshold power is than what their top five expenses are. And most importantly, what they're doing about those top five expenses, because every year those are going up. And even if it's only 1%, 2 or 2% there, and I've heard people say it's not really very much. Well, if your top 10 expenses all go up 2%, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you heard of P2 groups and wondered what they are? P2 stands for the Profitability Project. And while profitability is at the focus of everything we do, we do so much more. P2 group members share their expertise and their insights. They ask questions and they exchange resources to make sure every member is profitable and successful in every aspect of bike shop ownership. Reach out today so we can tell you more. So I want to talk about competition a little bit between retailers in a way. If you have two retailers in the same town and they're buying products, both from QBP, and they bought the same product and they hung it on the wall in their store, they have it priced the same. How can retailers either brand themselves or how do they compete at that point in time when basically the items are identical, the prices are identical, and even the place where they're buying from is the same? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a tough one, too. I think it's kind of easy to get mired in kind of what I'll call negativity around competition. I'm a big believer that stores have to differentiate themselves, and it's really foundational to branding. And I kind of hang it on, as a retailer, how do you make yourself special, distinctive, and memorable? And in doing it in such a way that people will pay you, it's kind of the essence of strategy. And you do have to figure that part out. A lot of retailers will say, well, you know, we're known for customer service. I can't tell you how many have told me that. Some are really exceptional, most are not. Because if you say that, you're being held against how Lexus does service, for instance, regardless of whether or not you're a Lexus dealer. And kind of the other service experiences retailers across the board have provided to this consumer. So I really think that you try to move away from competing on the thing and more about how are you more alluring to the consumer 
how are you working in the community in a way that is creating riders that's perhaps supporting the community? You know, one way to think about it, this is an old example, but when I owned a store, my wife taught at a private school that had an auction every year. We were a retailer, so people came for us to sponsor Little League and other things. We didn't do that because it wasn't bike. It didn't make sense to us. But bike made sense to us, so we were involved in things that promoted cycling. And we donated. I was not clear that I wanted to do it, but I liked the school and wanted to support my wife and the school. So we donated an expensive road bike at the time when those were popular. And a very interesting thing happened. And this is, again, we learned a lesson here. We backed into it. We weren't aware of it. Because we supported the school, all of a sudden teachers were buying bikes from us. And all of a sudden parents were buying bikes for themselves and their children because we supported the school. And so when we costed out what we had put into it, we actually did get a very strong return in a long-term way. And really, I think what this highlights is, again, what are you doing that's making yourself distinctive? How are you reaching out to communities in a way that is important to them, that is meaningful, and that they would want to come back? Because a lot of retailers will give you a narrative on how well they do in every category across the board, whether it's women or people of color or minorities. And I would challenge specifically, what are you doing that's meaningful? And you should probably learn that from somebody else rather than just what you think, if that makes sense. But I think the differentiation is a really big piece. And that's a tough one because at that point, we're selling commodities. Uh, We absolutely are. So every day, you and QBP, obviously, are plugged into what's happening with retailers. And you're speaking with retailers. You've seen over your years, obviously, a ton of great retailers. And you've seen those who have struggled Is there something that you have found that is just a foundational difference between these different stores and how they're doing? Is it a mindset? Is it a certain skill? Is there anything that you've ever been able to distill down as to the difference between those who are really succeeding, not just in their community, but also financially? Gosh, I think the biggest piece, and it may sound tedious, but it's that concept around business acumen. It really matters. And, you know, it's treating the business like a business on an everyday basis. And it is knowing your numbers. And it's frankly, I take it back to even a step back further, setting a goal. Okay, I've set the goal. How do I get there? And so those retailers that have prospered, they lean into their business every day. And it's not that they don't take time off, but they are extraordinarily conversant. They do stay on top of business and trends in the industry. They have learned things like real estate, whether they're renting or whether they're buying. I can think of one who's quite successful. And he said, location, location, location is not a cliche. And he's right. He's pretty savvy about where he puts a store, as an example. I think others look out a little bit further into the future, wondering how else they can be efficient. I can think of one who made a massive closeout cash buy, which got him even a better margin. This would have been in the middle 90s. And he then computerized his business when computerization was more expensive. But in doing so, that gave this retailer and his business partner extraordinary information to run the business even more efficiently and more effectively, again, being in the numbers. So I think the being in the numbers is probably it. And for some people, I know that's going to sound like, oh, that's not why I got in the bike business. And I would actually put it out there. It's not either or. It should be and. And if you own the business, it kind of has to be and, regardless of whether or not it's your favorite thing. You just can't not pay attention to it. And as you get on the numbers and as you understand your performance and what drives it and you increase that performance, you can ultimately become more profitable. And if you're more profitable, I would argue that profit just represents choice. 
the more your profit, the more choices you have. And that's kind of a cool place to be, to be able to have choice versus at the end of the year, having a, if there's any money left, it's probably an inventory, which is typical, but you know, not really kind of having a paltry existence. So I think there's opportunity there, but I think it's really learning your business. If you don't know it, you learn it, you get a mentor, you work with another person in business who understands it. There are things like community college classes, just even on basic things like cost accounting. But otherwise, you're, you know, you're cooking a turkey in an oven, but you don't have a thermometer, so you don't know if it's done or not. And that's a problem. Right. Right now, it feels a little bit like retailers and everybody is kind of hitting the reset button in a way. I think that inventories in the stores, are they're obviously able to sell through a lot of things. So they're kind yeah. of able to clean house. But retailers are also, and this has been discussed quite a bit, is how tired everybody is right now. And even you guys, there was an Instagram post on QBP's Instagram page that I saw last week. It was all hands on deck. Absolutely. Packing boxes and everybody's working longer and harder. As far as the next several months or year, and nobody has a crystal ball, obviously, but the things that retailers have learned in operating their businesses and how many times and how fast they've had to pivot in the last 60 or 90 days. Do you feel that that's going to be ultimately possibly a positive for how retailers in the whole industry has learned to completely change day to day in the beginning, week to week, and now kind of month to month? At the end, do you think it may be a net positive for operations? I believe so, because to be sure it's hard. And I know retailers are beyond tired and often 70, 80 hours doesn't get it. And so my heart goes out to them. I know it's a challenging time. I kind of think of the stress on top of stress on top of stress. And there are a lot of times in our personal life or in work that we're doing all these things that are first time ever, but then successively, right? You know, so that's really stressful. And so I do believe that some of the things we've learned will serve us. One is just the ability to change and to pivot. Sometimes it's forced upon us, and I would argue that would be right now. Other times there's an opportunity and we take a risk. But if we think about it, you know, we worked hard to support people for bikes to get bike shops nationally listed as essential businesses. Because we deeply believe in our hearts, bike shops are essential businesses. That was important for us because we believe that designation allowed a number of retailers to continue to do business if they chose. Some chose not to because they were worried about health. I totally understand and respect that. But a number did and had to, to your point, change how they were doing business by appointment, more online, through Facebook, any number of things that allowed them to serve their communities and be accessible to their customers. And, you know, even when I think about the numbers of customers that have chosen to sign up for a retail fulfillment or have created a stronger online presence, For a number of people, they had no interest in doing that with these significant changes in public health policy and the challenges that we were all dealing with. A number of people leaned in and based on the numbers we're seeing, it seems to be making a difference. So I guess at the end, I think most people don't like change. I know I'm in that boat. However, I know that being able to be open to change and then understanding how to work through change might be one of the most important skills I've ever learned at QBP because it allows us to continue to develop and grow either, again, because it's forced upon us or because there's an opportunity, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Todd, this has been very informative. We really appreciate that you took the time today. Do you have any final thoughts or last words for us here as we start to wrap this up? 
Oh, gosh, thanks, David. It's just a pleasure to be on the podcast. And thank you so much. You know, I really just have such profound respect for our retailers out there and the services they provide the community. We really believe bikes solve a lot of problems. And we think that bike shops are positioned to be able to be part of the solution, which is really magical. Not all businesses can say or do that or even feel that good. So it's just our great privilege to serve retailers out there as well as suppliers getting the product to retailers. In both cases, these are really critical stakeholders that we want to support and continue to advocate on behalf of. So I'd say thank you very much. Best of luck. I still think we have bright, bright skies ahead of us. Excellent. Well, everybody, that was Todd Cravens. We thank him for being on the episode today. If you found this episode or others of Bicycle Retail Radio insightful and informative, please consider joining the NBDA. If you haven't already, by visiting nbda.com, as the NBDA has benefits that can save you money and improve your business. Ultimately, your membership adds to the collective voice of the specialty bicycle retailer and the NBDA's efforts to represent and advocate for your interests. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com.